2009, November 18th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 37, Strange New Worlds, the Properties of Exoplanets. Slave to the technology. Okay, so we've been looking at planets around other stars. We've established the ways in which we search for these planets, and we've begun to see that we found a great number of these worlds. Today's lecture, I want to now turn not too much to the methods as to what it is we found, some of the real surprises that have come out of the last 10-odd 10, 10 years of, of extrasolar planet research. So I've entitled this lecture, Strange New Worlds. This is not simply a gratuitous Star Trek reference. This is actually a very clear statement of fact. What we have found is some very, very strange new worlds. There we go. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be describing the properties of the exoplanet systems we have discovered thus far. Again, to review, as of the 13th of November, there are 405 planets known around 343 stars. Most of these have been discovered by either the radial velocities or the planet transit method. That gives us the majority of these. There's other methods like microlensing that we, we mentioned. We'll, we'll see some of the results from that as well. A couple of big surprises came out of these searches. We did not find, the big surprise maybe is further down, we didn't find things that looked like our solar system right away. In fact, what we found is a completely new class of objects called hot Jupiters. These are giant gas planets that are very, very close to their parent stars. And they're a big surprise because we have no idea how to form a giant gas planet that close to its parent stars. We'll see. The other big surprise is that when we've mapped out the orbits of some of these things using the velocities primarily, we've discovered that many of them are very eccentric or elliptical. This is very much unlike the case in our solar system, where eccentric and elliptical orbits are things like comets or extreme asteroids, not the big gas planets. So that's another clue. Something really different is going on in these systems. One of the ways in which we can understand some of that is through an idea called planetary migration. We're not going to go into a lot about planetary migration because it's highly technical. But basically the idea is that the gas planets formed further out from their stars and then dynamically migrated inwards over the course of their formation early in the, in the history of these solar systems. There's some evidence for this. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to it. But it's actually an idea which at first sight seems crazy, but now it's like it's about the only way to explain some of the really wacky stuff we're seeing. Finally, I want to end by mentioning that the fact that we haven't found anything, that or found only a handful of things, or even less than a handful, a couple fingers, of systems that are resembling our own solar system, turns out in part to be a methodological problem. The methods we're using that are primarily successful for finding planets are biased against finding solar system-like systems now. But we're beginning... To that all is beginning to change. And we're beginning to start picking up the first few systems that are becoming solar system analogs. And there's some hope towards the end that we're actually going to find the solar system analogs may in fact be relatively common as planets go. We just don't know that yet. It's just a feeling. And, and some statistical basis based on a handful of systems. But also we haven't yet found Earth. We haven't yet found things that are like the Earth. And we'll say a little bit at the end about those searches for, for the things that we think are going to be Earth's We'll say a lot more about Earth's in tomorrow's lecture.
So again, just to recap, the, the basic number to sort of stick in your head, although again, don't, don't burn this one onto your, on your forehead because it's going to change, is we now found more than 400 planets around other stars. So we've gone from zero to 400 in, in just under 14 years, and that's an astounding rate. And in fact, it has doubled in the last two years, effectively. Now, whether this doubling will continue at this rate or not is, is difficult to say, but I'm going to guess that it's going to get up to many thousands of planets by the end of this, well, certainly before the end of this decade, which is only got, what, 40-odd days left, that's scary. Um, we're probably going to pick up another few ten planets, but certainly before the next decade is out, it's going to be up to many thousands of systems, and we hope somewhere in there are going to be Earth-like planets. Just the basic numbers, you don't need to memorize these, because again, they're going to change. Of these 400, about 315 of them have been found by the radial velocities method, so something like three-quarters of the planets. The other big jump is the group by the transit method. This actually, this division's a little bit tricky because, in fact, some of the transiting planets have been discovered by radial velocities and vice versa. So there's a little bit of cross-up in there. So I've tried to d divide them as best I could by which method discovered them, but understanding that some radial velocity planets are transiting planets, and some, but not all, of the transiting planets have, si have been subsequently followed up with radial velocities to confirm them. So far, we know of 11 planets by direct imaging. I would say of those 11, really four are really secure. The other ones are a little iffy because they seem to be really, really big. They're kind of super Jupiters. And I think there's a lot of legitimate argument as to whether those are actually honest-to-goodness planets or not, or maybe they're shading into failed stars or so-called brown dwarfs. So that number is, I would say, four solid, seven, uh, how you feeling today? And wh which way do you come down? We found nine planets by the microlensing method. And again, I can say with sort of a certain Buckeye pride that we, Ohio State, are responsible for seven of those nine. We invented the technique and are certainly leading the most successful collaboration about that. And eight, interestingly, have been found by pulsar timing. We haven't talked anything about this. Pulsar is a leftover neutron star after a supernova, and you can actually measure timing sufficiently accurately that people have actually found leftover junk around them. Maybe a planetary system or maybe just coagulated debris. We really don't know what they are, but they enter into the count for what it's worth. We're going to ignore those for the rest of this time because they're just so wacky, we don't even bother with them. <coughs> One of the things so far in the census of systems is we found mostly single planet systems. This is not to say that they are the only planet in their stellar system. It means it's the only one that we've detected so far. Not surprisingly, because most of our techniques have to do with radial velocities, with transit methods, we're biased towards finding very large, very massive planets. So we're going to find the big one first. The smaller ones are a lot harder. So the fact that most of these are so-called single planet detection should not be taken to mean that's only one planet around that star. It just means only one big one has been found so far. There are 45 systems, however, and this number has been growing fairly rapidly, that are multi-planet systems. Finding multi-planet systems is much more challenging because you're going to get multiple wobbles on top of wobbles and you've got to dig them out. And you can do that. The techniques are really good for doing that now. Some of these multi-planet systems are getting upwards of four or five gas giants and ice giants. So these are really wacky systems compared to our own. Our own system has two gas giants, two ice giants, total of four giant planets. So we are starting to find things with relatively, um, relatively similar numbers of objects, but not in any of the kinds of numbers we would, you know, we're not finding big numbers yet. But again, the techniques are kind of early days. One of the things
things that come out of this, though, and this is sort of part of the lesson of today's lecture, which I guess the two guys left are going to miss, uh, are, is that none of the systems we've found so far, or at least most of them now, because we really have found one solar system analog, don't look anything like our solar system. Now, maybe going in, we had some expectation that, you know, there's this, this idea we ran into before called the Copernican Principle. The Earth is not at the center of the universe. It's just a planet circling the sun. We're just out in some random outskirts of the galaxy. There's nothing special about the Milky Way galaxy except it's, it's kind of ours, but it's no different than other spiral of the you know, hundreds of billions of spiral galaxies in the universe. So we have got this idea that there's no preferred place in the universe, and we certainly don't live there. We're just, you know, we're just somewhere. So part of that idea of the Copernican principle is there's nothing special about our solar system, and yet we're not finding really systems that are like our solar system. So it really is raising this question, is our solar system maybe unique? Or at least, we now know it isn't truly unique, is there something about it that makes it slightly out of the ordinary? Maybe we are not an average solar system. We don't know the answer to that yet, but it's certainly a theme that runs through the research and is part of where we're pushing this work now as we move into the next decade. So let's, let's remind you of, of the first real planet. Now, there were before 51 Pegasi was found in 1995, uh, there were some of the pulsar planets detected. There was one tentative measurement of a gas giant around a star, but it was really 51 Pegasi that, that sort of burst the dam open for discovery of planets in 95. And when it was discovered, as I mentioned yesterday, it was a, it was a real surprise as for its properties. Let me remind you that it was done using the Doppler radial velocity method, or the so-called Doppler wobble method. What they found was an orbital motion of the star, which is moving in reflex due to the presence of, a, of an unseen invisible planet. It's not invisible because we can't see it, just because it's lost in the glare of the star. And it's definitely way too close to the star to see by any techniques we've developed. It's got a four and a quarter day period. It's got a mass, a semi-major axis of 0.05 AUs. Remind you that Mercury, Venus, and the Earth, and Mars in round numbers are 0 0.4, 0 0.81, and 1.4 AUs. So this thing is way closer. It's almost 10 times closer to, the, to its star than Mercury is from our sun. Certainly, it's 20 times closer to our sun than we are. Or its sun and we are from ours. So it's really in close, but the mass estimate of this thing is about a half a Jupiter mass. So this is a gas giant planet, and there's subsequent work which makes us think that it really is a gas giant. And it's really, really close to its parent star. And that's the big surprise. Because if we look in our solar system, the gas giants are all far out, right? Jupiter's out at 5 AUs, Saturn's out at 10 AUs, the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, are out at 20 and 30 AUs. They're way the heck out there. They're beyond this place, which is referred to variously as the ice line or the snow line. Somewhere out about three or four astronomical units away from the sun is where the equilibrium temperature drops to the point that you can have stable ices existing on the surfaces of planets without atmospheres. Certainly early in the formation of the solar system, the ice line was basically the dividing point between inside the ice line is where you got rock and junk because ices wouldn't be stable. Remember, the Earth formed pretty much out of rock. There were no ices or volatiles on it except those that were dissolved in liquid molten rock because any ices on the surface of a proto-Earth or a proto-Venus were just going to evaporate and sublime out into space. We had to get our ices later coming in from beyond the ice line being brought in by comets and being brought in by chondritic asteroid strikes, which carry a lot of ices with them because they grew out beyond the ice line. The way we think about the way planets form 
is that Jupiter probably started out as a rocky core, but because there's a lot of ices out there, those ices could begin to accumulate on that rocky core and lead to runaway growth of that core. Once the core gets above about 10 times the mass of the Earth, it begins to have the ability to accrete hydrogen and helium onto it and build a gigantic hydrogen-helium atmosphere. The way I like to think of it, at least you know, just sort of conceptually, is think about you know, rolling a rock down a sand dune. It just kind of rolls down the sand dune and picks up a little dust. Then roll a rock down a uh, snow-covered hill. It will pick up snow and grow, snowball, literally, as it grows. That's about what happens beyond the ice line or beyond the so-called snow line, is when you have the presence of condensable ices in the colder outer parts of a solar nebula, you can lead to very rapid growth, just the same way that rolling a rock down a snow-covered hill will lead to a very rapid growth of those ices. That's why we speak of the cores of Jupiter and Saturn as being rock and ice. Uranus and Neptune take that one step further. They're mostly rock and ice. There just wasn't a lot of hydrogen out there for them to grab, so they never grew much bigger. So in that picture, the natural division between rocky planets on the inside, gas and ice giants on the outside, makes sense. Everyone's pretty happy with the picture. We figured all we had to work out was the details of time scales and everything would be cool. And then along comes 51 Pegasi and basically kicks that thing in the butt. It says, hey, here's a Jupiter way inside the orbit of Mercury around its parent star. Way, way inside the ice line. A factor of 100 inside the ice line for that star. What the hell is it doing there? It's a big problem because it, people thought, well, okay, it's just 51 Peg. It's weird. We found the first one because it's the easiest one to find. Here's a cartoon of just how extreme this thing is, why it made people uncomfortable. This is the right scale. It's 10 solar radii out from the, uh, 10 stellar radii out from its sun. So it really is just, you know, up close and personal to its, uh, to its parent star. It's a gas giant, and we have no idea why it's supposed to be there. It's tidally locked. There's all kinds of strange stuff going on. And the problem was, we just kept finding them. One after another of planets that are detected, the ice giants are the easiest to detect by radial velocities. They're the easiest to detect by transits because they're closer, so the amount of projected alignment zone where you will cross the planet star is bigger. It's a problem. We had a whole bunch of these. So that's the first real big surprise and the big mystery is that we found so many big Jupiters so close to their parent stars. Now, if you look at these multi-planet systems, this is a very nice plot. So it's a couple years old, so that we don't have quite all the multi-planet systems on here. There's 45 of them now, but these are just what was known about a year or so ago when this plot was made. This shows on, on the vertical axis, basically is just simply an ordering. The, uh, they're roughly in order of discovery, with, the, with our solar system down here at the bottom is sort of the latest one. And then this red circle represents the size of the star. So you can see, for, for reference, our sun is about that big, that circle on the bottom. On the horizontal axis, what we plot is the semi-major axis of the orbit on a logarithmic scale. Because I've got such a wide range here, I plot 1 100th, a 10th, 1 AU, 10 AUs, 100 AUs. And of course, the Sol system, the sun system, is Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And the Earth and Mars are so small, you can't even plot them on this plot. But there, you know, Earth is here at 1 AU. But here are where the gas giants and the ice giants are, because these are the planets we're finding around other stars around our sun. And you'll notice that, with only one real exception up here, which is in this uh, 55 Cancri system, all of these planets are inside where the orbit of Jupiter would be in our system. With a bigger star, 
as in the case of, well, 51 Cancri's, 55 Cancri is pretty close to our sun, but some of these stars are bigger and brighter than the sun. All of these things are roughly inside the ice line. And you'll notice they're all really big. There's these big pileups of giant Jupiter-sized things and Neptune and Uranus-sized things sitting very much closer than what we find on our own solar system. Now, there's a, there's a little bit of a selection effect. You'll notice, I think all of you probably can notice, it looks like there's kind of a sharp edge running up and down here at about, it's about seven or eight astronomical units. That's not your eye mistaking. There really is a sharp edge there. And that sharp edge is a selection effect. Any planet that's beyond that line has an orbital period which is longer than the time scale of the experiments that are searching for planets. So in order to confirm that you've got a planet circling its star, you want to see at least one full orbit. Better if you can get a couple. Well, if your orbit's four days, that's, e well, straightforward. <laughs> Not easy, <laughs> but it's straightforward. If your orbit is 12 years, that's 12 years of observing to get one orbit, 24 years to get two full orbits, which is really what you want for full confirmation. So part of this line here is a selection effect. The experiments have only been running since 1988. Actually, really only got rolling in the, 19, in the early 1990s. It's 2009 now. We're coming up on 20 years. So it's not surprising. It's, we haven't gotten out here yet because our experiments aren't beginning to get sensitive to that. So the first thing this illustrates, the first conclusion you come to, is that part of this observation of large planets close to their stars is that's what we can detect now. You have to wait longer times to build up the data to detect the slower-moving outer planets the ones in the longer period orbits. So in part, this hot Jupiter thing is a selection effect in that the fact that we see so many of them is just that's what we're sensitive to. We're only now starting to crack into the zone of solar systems that will begin to resemble our own. So we're not too worried about the fact that we haven't found a lot of solar system analogs yet because of that selection effect. But the problem still remains, or what the heck are all these big Jupiters doing so close to their stars? <laughs> Okay, so let's back up a little bit and look more generally at the properties of the exoplanets. I'm going to come back to what are they doing so close here in just a little bit. We need a few more pieces of data. So if we look at the properties of the known exoplanets so far, and, and this particular plot is about a year and a half old. I haven't been able to get my act together enough to be able to, to fill this in better. Shows essentially a plot of where they are in their orbit in semi-major axis versus their mass and units of the mass of the Earth. And we've plotted the color is given to the major planets of our solar system. So Mercury just falls off this plot because it's too small. Mars sort of brings up the bottom. Venus and Earth there. Uranus and Neptune. Jupiter and Saturn. So that gives you the scale of the things we find in our solar system. And you'll notice that, again, we're seeing this sort of diagonal band here of stuff running up and down this way. And all the little triangles there are all the radial velocities planets. The little red dots you see there are the transiting planets at the time this picture was made. These are the microlensing planets shown in these kind of big gray crosses. And there's a couple of other planets found by other methods here. What we haven't got on here yet are the direct detection methods. This diagonal band is partially showing you the selection effect, right? Remember, we have a sensitivity to planets of a certain speed. The closer they are to the star, the faster I can see them at a lower mass. 
As I go to higher masses to have that kind of speed, to have a kind of detectable speed, they have to be a bigger mass to have a bigger reflex speed. So part of this diagonal band you see here is part of the fact that we're using radial velocities to find them. So this paucity of objects down here is the discovery space is slowly moving down this way. And as it moves down this way, we begin to pick up the combination of velocity, sensitivity, and time. We'll begin filling this in. We just now have reached the point that we could detect a Jupiter around a sun-like star using radial velocities. We're nowhere near, maybe just about to do it with Saturn in a few years, we're nowhere near being able to do Neptunes and Uranuses yet in those orbits. Microlensing, interestingly, is sensitive to these kinds of Uranus-like planets, and in fact, we filled in a few out here in the last year. So what we see is when we put these together, we find a really rich diversity of planetary properties. So far, the planet masses we've detected are between six times the mass of the Earth and about 13 times the mass of Jupiter. You know, we're getting up into a couple thousand Jupiter mass, a couple thousand, two, not a couple thousand Jupiter masses, a couple thousand Earth mass kinds of things up here, far away. These are really big, hulking planets. The semi-major axes, again, we've been sensitive only to planets out to about eight astronomical units. That's a reflective of the amount of time these experiments have been going on and the sensitivities of the, the speed sensitivity of the experiments. This is a big surprise. The eccentricities, the how elliptical or eccentric the orbit is. A perfectly circular orbit has a zero eccentricity. An orbit that's broken up into an escape path has an eccentricity of one. Halley's Comet, a very eccentric orbit in our solar system, has an eccentricity of 0.7. So these, some of these planets are extremely eccentric. That was, a, that was a big surprise. We'll say more about that in just a second. The host star masses that we're finding these things around range between about 0.3 M suns down into kind of, yeah, kind of the upper end of the red dwarfs, all the way up to five, suns, five solar masses. We've actually found planets around A stars. Again, sort of right about at the limit of what we think we were going to search for. We really were going to concentrate on F, G, K, M stars and really G, K, and M, kind of the lower end of F. But we've come up with a couple of these things up in the five solar mass range. But most of the ones we've found have been low mass stars. We've really found these mostly around G and K stars, partially because that's where people have been looking. We're starting to press down in towards the M stars. And the distances, the closest of these planetary systems we've found is 10 light years out. The most distant is out around 21,000 light years. These are some of the microlensing planets we've begun to detect and planets we've begun to detect by transiting methods towards our galactic bulge. So we've begun to press into that larger population towards the center of the galaxy. So we have a tremendous range of distances represented here. So there's an awful lot of diversity here, but there were an awful lot of surprises as well. Surprise number one, which I've already mentioned and will now deal with, is that so many of these Jupiter-sized or larger planets are within five astronomical units of their parent stars. So this plot here, which I like to call the bubble plot, shows the innermost planet, sort of from the inner innermost to the outer innermost <laughs> planets in order. There's some, this is the most recent version of this plot. There's about 183 planetary systems, no, I'm sorry, 253 planetary systems represented in this one. So it's all kind of just a plot, but you can get the sort of general feeling. There's five astronomical units. They're all inside the ice line for the most part. We're just starting to crack out into the ice line here at the lower end of this diagram, but most of them are inside the ice line. A lot of them, in fact, are well inside the orbit of Mercury, which means they're within the tidal locking radius for their parent stars. We do have transits for some of these planets. They do actually pass between us and their parent stars. That's very good because the transit depth gives us the ratio of the area. 
If I know the radius of the star, that means I know the radius of the planet. I have an estimate of the mass of the planet from its orbital speed. Mass divided by radius cubed is mass divided by volume is the density. Remember, in our own solar system, we use the density as a way to tell what a planet was made of. So we've actually begun to learn about the compositions of some of these planets. Not just that they exist, but the transit data really let us get down and actually find out what's going on. And we're finding they really are gas giants. They aren't just big rock balls. They really do have the densities similar to what we see in Jupiter and Saturn. So we're really seeing gas giants here. Now again, as I mentioned, part of what we're seeing here is a selection effect. These are the ones we're going to find first. But it, the fact that we found a whole bunch of them, despite the fact that they're the ones we're sensitive to finding first, is we don't know how they got there. What did, why is it they've gotten there? One of the questions may, in fact, have to do with migration. But we're not there yet. Here's a very nice plot. It's a very complicated plot, so I won't go into it in great detail. This is what we can learn from transiting data. This is really exciting stuff, and why transits are now so hot is because we can plot the radius versus the mass for these planets. And if you think about it, these lines here represent physical models now of different composition planets. So the blue lines here represent hydrogen, helium, gas giants. These uh, Darker blue lines here represent various kinds of water, iron, silicate mixtures. And down here is like a pure iron planet. That'd be almost like a Mercury's kind of down in there. There's Mars. There's the Earth and Venus. There's Uranus and Neptune. And then buried up beneath the red points here, those little triangles there are Saturn and Jupiter, respectively. Again, not surprisingly, Jupiter and Saturn are gas giants. The ice giants land somewhere between the gas giants and the beginning of the rocky planets. Venus and Earth and Mars are solidly terrestrial planets, mostly iron, magnesium, silicate planets. You know, silicate sitting on top of iron cores. We haven't found anything down here yet in transiting. We found a couple more ice giants down here by transits. We're finding a lot of gas giants. So this really does confirm that a lot of these planets we're finding close in really are gas giants. In fact, a few of them are starting to get down into the ice giant zone, which is really interesting. Like. If it's hard to find a make a gas giant that close to the star, how do you make an ice giant that close to its parent star? The ices should all sublimate away. So this is what's starting to begin to argue for so-called migration mechanisms to explain these. The second surprise, which I'd already mentioned, has to do with the eccentricities of those gas orbits. If I, if I plot all the orbits looking down upon sort of one super solar system and just pile everything together, and just for reference, the green dashed line is the orbit of Jupiter. First of all, again, you see the effect we've mentioned before. Mostly we're finding planets really close in. Size of the dot is proportional to the mass of the planet here. But you can see how many of these things are on really long eccentric orbits. These things really are not circular. But in our solar system, the eight planets are approximately circular in shape. Okay. What we're seeing is that elliptical orbits, while extremely rare in our solar system for planets, seems to be very common among the extrasolar planets. At least certainly the extrasolar planets we found, which tend to be those exoplanet systems that have Jupiter-mass planets close to their parent stars. We are starting to find a few more planetary systems with planets, planets far from their, planet star, uh, their parent stars, some of them are still showing up eccentric, but not all of them. Now, there is a limit. It's really hard to see in here. But this eccentricity shuts down when you get very close to the planets, to the, to the post star. 
And the reason why it shuts down and the planets orbits circularize again is because they become subject to an effect called tidal circularization. That same tidal effect that causes tidal locking when you get too close to your parent star also circularizes your orbit. So it really has to do with not so close that you tidally circularize, but further out that you get this real immense number of elliptical, eccentric and elliptical orbits. Some of these eccentricities are getting up to the eccentricities we see for comets in our solar system. This plot shows that better with sort of laying things out. Now I've got the average orbital distance, the semi-major axis, and the orbital eccentricity plot on the vertical axis. Again, the size of the circle scales like the planet, so big planets are big spots, little planets are little spots. And just throwing in place, the most eccentric of the eight planets is Mercury, followed by Mars. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Earth, and Venus are kind of, you know, fairly low eccentricity. They're not perfectly circular. Only Venus gets down to almost perfectly circular. And you'll see that in this very close to the star, within about a tenth of an AU, you don't find really super eccentric orbits. They're all getting pretty close to circular until finally you get to the really hot Jupiters, the ones that are really hugging their stars, and those things go essentially circular. And that's, again, this effect I mentioned called tidal circularization. But when you get further out, look at the huge range. This thing's up around 0.93. That's a ridiculously elliptical orbit, and it's just way the heck out there. So there's something going on that's making these, these planets extremely eccentric. And it may be related to the fact that we're also seeing them relatively close to their parent stars. Although some of these are starting to get uncomfortably into the Jupiter zone. When we ever see really eccentric orbits in our solar system, that's usually a signpost of dyna- strong gravitational dynamical interactions among different bodies. In the case of our solar system, comets have really big orbits because they may be circular far out, but they get tickled by a passing star and they plunge inward on long elliptical orbits. Or when they plunge into our solar system, they pass by the gravity of Jupiter and Jupiter spins it up into a nice elliptical orbit. Asteroids are stirred up into relatively elliptical orbits by the gravity of Jupiter. So whenever you see a lot of eccentric orbits, that says this particular body has undergone some kind of big dynamical gravity interaction at some point in its history. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing systems that, dynamically speaking, have been stirred up. Well, some of these systems have multiple gas giants in them, and we know that gas giants can feel each other's gravity, and they can, in fact, stir the system up. There's another final fact that comes into play, as shown by this plot, is there's another fact that where we find planets seems to know something about how many metals are inside the star that's their parent. So here, for example, this this plot measures the iron to hydrogen content. Remember that iron and heavy metals come from supernovae. So stars that form from later generations in the galaxy are going to form out of gas that has been polluted by heavy metals, iron, nickel, and other stuff from supernova explosions that went on from earlier generations of stars. The younger your star, the more recent of a generation that it formed, the higher the metal content is going to be. Similarly, stars that form way out in the galaxy where there's not a lot of new star formation, not a lot of pollution, or around very, very old stars that formed out of gas that had not yet been polluted by metals have very low what we call metallicity or metal content. So on the left hand of the diagram is metal poor, on the right hand side is metal rich, and it just turns out for this scale the sun is about right smack in the middle. In fact, we use the sun as the reference point. 
And what this plots in the vertical axis is the percentage of stars with that metallicity that have planets. And we see a very strong trend that the more metals you have in your star, the more metals you were born out of, the more likely you are to have a planet. Shouldn't surprise too much. The star's metal content represents the metal content of the chemical abundances in the gas out of which it formed. The planets formed out of the leftovers. Since planets have rocky silicate cores and metals, the more of that stuff you have relative to hydrogen, the more raw material to form a planet you have. Whereas when you go metal poor, so the thinking goes, you got an awful lot of hydrogen and helium, but not much of the rock and metals and silicates and stuff you need to really build the cores for a planet. So this is an effect we kind of expected, but it actually tells us something about where we might go looking, an additional factor we might use when we're looking for planets. You might not want to spend too much of your time looking for planets around really metal poor, very ancient stars in our galaxy. You want to look around very relatively recent generations of stars with lots of metals. Or it may have a statement about where we should expect the frequency of planetary systems. There should be more planets in the more metal-rich neighborhoods and fewer planets in the more metal-poor neighborhoods of our galaxy and other galaxies. So just a place we might think about when we start thinking about galactic habitability. Seems to know something about where the metals are. Okay. So with that one exception, and that one exception turns out to be one of the microlensing planet systems, we have really not found any system so far that resembled the sun. Okay. The really large eccentricities we're finding are really hard to explain, and I'm not going to try to explain them today because we don't know the explanation for it. It's, it's a puzzle, a puzzle we haven't solved yet. Again, the biggest surprise, I think the thing that really caught us all off guard when the first discoveries were announced is we're finding so many gas giants so close to the star, and we're finding them deep inside the ice line where our conception is that Jupiter-sized planets should not be able to form. So what's going on? Why are we seeing all these Jupiters close in? Here's the picture. Again, planet mass versus equilibrium temperature now. And now I'm going to plot the snow line. Instead of plotting distance, I'm plotting equilibrium temperature. So I'm bringing into play the fact that the stars have different temperatures and luminosities. The planets have different distances. And so the real question is, where are things forming relative to the so-called snow line? Okay, And this is roughly where the snow line lives. Everything to the right of this line there will be cold, frozen, stable volatiles, stable ices, water ice, methane ice, ammonia ice, and so forth, out beyond this point around the parent star. Inside, to the left of this blue line, is where we expect the rocky planets to be. This is basically where there should be no icy volatiles. And in fact, remember that the Earth size is right here, down here. This is in Jupiter masses. Jupiter is right there, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. So not surprisingly, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune are rich in ices and gas. The Venus and Earth are not. The other line to put on top of this of interest is the habitable zone for this planet. That's the other reason why I chose the equilibrium temperature here. The habitable zone is where an Earth-like planet would have liquid stable water on its surface rather than stable ices. You'll notice that Venus and Earth sort of sit around close to this habitable zone. Uh, I didn't realize until I plotted this picture earlier that um, the person I got this from, one of my uh, former graduate students, who's now a Sagan fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study, might have Venus in a slightly wrong place. Or we, we gotta, I got to ask him why he calculated this the way it was. 
Um, that makes maybe for Earth in a Venus location because it seems to put Venus solidly in the habitable zone, and that's not what I've been saying. So this may be a much more optimistic zone here. But you'll notice there's an awful lot of things in the habitable zone, and everyone gets excited and says, ooh, cool, until you look at the masses, and they're much more than 10 times the mass of the Earth, so all these things are going to be basically completely inhospitable. They're going to build big gas atmospheres or ice atmospheres, and you're not going to get liquid water because you just got too heavy an atmosphere up there. So, so far, we don't have any planets in the habitable zones that are actually habitable-like planets, except for the Earth and Venus, if we could do something about its silly atmosphere. Now, contrary to previous statements, we're now picking up a lot more planets out here beyond the snow line in the gas giants. You'll notice a lot of them are the green points. Those are our microlensing planets. So here's the niche that microlensing falls into. You might say, well, come on, Professor, you can only discover nine microlensing planets in 10 years of effort. The radial velocity people are up there kicking your butt around the sky at 300-odd planets. Why do you bother? And the answer is, we're immediately sensitive to planets in this region, whereas they're not yet, and they're not going to be for another decade. But here's the interesting, uh, interesting insight that comes into this. We've only looked at maybe a dozen systems, and most of them are beyond the ice line. These two down here, this, this green band here from MOA, 2008, 310, and some others, these planets here, this is just starting to glance the ice line. Most of our microlensing planets are outside the ice line, and we're finding them fairly frequently, which tells us that that idea that we're getting a selection effect, that we're dealing with the radial velocity pro problem is actually finding the closer planets, but there's a lot more solar system-like systems out there to be found. Microlensing is beginning to hint that. We found one microlens solar system analog with microlensing out of eight systems. That's one in eight. Okay. Statistics of one is dicey, but if they were much rarer than that, we shouldn't have found any this early in the process. Either we're phenomenally lucky, and you know you can be lucky. I mean, that's after all, gambling in casinos is basically predicated on the fact that people don't understand the difference between luck and statistics. So you could get lucky once, or it is really telling us that solar system-like systems really are more common. But it's all this stuff inside the snow line that bugs us. And so the basic idea is one called migration. The idea is that the planets actually formed out of this big rotating disk of gas and junk around the protostar. But as they begin, the big gas giants begin to form, they basically begin to hollow out a section of the disk. They hoover up with their gravity all the gas. In addition, you begin to get a tidal interactions with the inner and outer portions of the gap that you're opening up. But if this disk is really heavy, the gravity of the stuff in here is going to tug back on your planet. So if you form a gas giant out of a really heavy protoplanetary disk, it's actually going to produce an effect of drag, dynamical drag, on this newly formed gas giant and actually begin to drive it inwards. So the bulk of the formation went on outside the ice line, but dynamically, relatively fast speaking, millions of years in, in this kind of parlance, during the formation stage of the solar system, you can actually drive that planet closer to its parent star through this process of basically a kind of tidal drag called migration. Now, there's different kinds of migration. Another kind of migration might have a couple of gas giants forming out here. They have a close gravitational encounter. The uh, usual outcome of that encounter is one of the planets moves in and the other planet moves out. And so over time, what you will do is throw one of the planets inward through this migration process. 
It's a fairly complicated idea. Going into the details of this are kind of beyond the scope of the class. But this is a way to salvage this idea that the gas giants form beyond the snow line and then are migrated inwards. It also means that, that probably is bad news for any rocky planets in those systems because as those Jupiter-like planets move closer to the star, they're going to fling out any rocky planets that get in their way. So in fact, these systems may be utterly uninhabited because they may in fact, through the process of migration, destroy their rocky planets, thrown them out of the system or thrown them into their stars. So we may owe our existence to being in a system where the Jupiter, if you will, to a first approximation, stayed put beyond the snow line. Because if Jupiter had migrated insignificantly, we wouldn't be here probably. So that's an interesting insight that comes from the fact that we're seeing all the hot Jupiters just because you got planets doesn't mean we can expect rocky planets in their habitable zones. There may be other factors, like whether you form big Jupiters, whether you form multiple of them, and whether there was strong migration may determine the overall population of planets within that stellar system. It could be that that migration explains hot Jupiters and makes those stellar systems uninhabitable. It doesn't give you any rocky planets to stand on. So this brings us back to this one thing that I've mentioned many times, is that so far we're not seeing solar system-like planets. And the reason, again, this is just to summarize, is that the Doppler wobble method, the radial velocity and transit methods, are, not, are only sensitive to basically Jupiter and, and Saturn mass planets down to about Neptune mass planets close in. Doppler techniques currently are limited to about 5 AUs, so they're just reaching the orbit of Jupiter around Sun-like stars. Now, the transit technique is even more strongly biased. And so what you can expect, sort of advertisement of things to come, transiting planet searches have begun to really take off in the last few years. So the next few announcements you're going to see in the newspapers and the magazines and on the Internet about new planet discoveries, a lot of them are going to come out of the transit technique. Beware. If radial velocities was sensitive to close-in planets, that stands even more sen greater sensitivity for the transiting planets. Transiting planets are super sensitive to close-in planets because they're the ones most likely to pass between us and their parent stars. So we're going to get a lot of this bias of we're not seeing things like our solar system because, in fact, the premier methods aren't sensitive to them. Radial velocities is only just becoming sensitive. Transits will never become sensitive to them except at the margins. Microlensing, however, this is why you know Andy Gould and Scott Gowdy and our faculty and they've sucked me into it and others have really put a lot of effort into microlensing. Why the Korean government is going to spend 30 billion won building three, two or three telescopes in the southern hemisphere to try to get the microlensing planet search up into the hundreds of planet zones is exactly because microlensing, as we've already seen, is very, very sensitive to solar system-like systems. So in fact, microlensing may be the way to find solar system analogs for the time, for the, for the, for the coming few years. And that's why we're putting so much effort into this. It's a rough technique, right? You've got to look at millions of stars to look at the handful that lens in a particular way, but, you know, there it goes. That's how we basically make this work. We have begun to find things which are getting up to the scales of solar system. Here's our solar system, and on top is the 55 Cancri system, a star in the constellation of Cancer the Crab. It shows in green, that little green band you can see there is its habitable zone. And gee, there's planets close to the habitable zone, but they're all gas giants and ice giants. So 
People like to tout 55 Cancri as solar system-like, but, you know, come on, kids. We don't have Jupiter sitting inside of Mercury. It ain't going to happen. All of these planets are bigger than about, you know, 0.05. Yep, Jupiter, I think, is the biggest one in this one. It's not, not very solar system-like. This system, Ogle 2006-109, that we discovered a couple years ago via microlensing, is, in fact, a solar system analog. It has a Jupiter and Saturn in about the Jupiter and Saturn positions when scaled down to the properties of the star. So this is why the big hope is. Now, we don't know if there's anything outside, and we don't know if there's anything inside, because the method isn't sensitive to that. But if we see Jupiters and Saturns out in their proper places in the ice line, and they formed in the same way our solar system formed, this may be very well a system in which there are rocky planets inside the snow line. It's a place we could go looking. Unfortunately, it's a few thousand light years away, so it's going to be kind of hard to go there. So all the searches we've gotten before, the radio velocity methods, we really are still we're working in these Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune mass objects. We're not getting down to Earth's yet. This is a really beautiful illustration. I got this from my colleague Scott Gowdy here, who's, who's really one of the leaders in our planet search group. And it shows up kind of like a grade curve, except the grade curve now is your mass in masses of Jupiter and the frequency, the number of planets that have that mass. So it kind of looks like a grade curve, you know falls off to the high mass end, long tail towards low scores, you know, same deal going here, lots of funny gaps. Here's Jupiter's mass is the dotted line, Saturn, and now to Neptune. So Neptune and Uranus are kind of together, and Uranus is just a little bit below that. And so we can see that we're kind of very incomplete. The methods are just starting to crack into these mass zones with the higher sensitivity work, but Earth is way down here. There's a big gap. There's a long ways to go before the radial velocities are going to get down to Earth's. They've got to get down to tens of centimeters per second to be able to detect Earth. Transit methods, on the other hand, are going to break into this very soon. It's going to take about three or four years for transits to really break in there because it's going to be much more rare transits. You've got to watch them for longer. It's going to take time to bring it up. Interestingly, I've touted microlensing as being sensitive to Jupiter's and Saturn and Jupiter and Saturn-like orbits. But in fact, in the last year or so, we've really refined our photometry techniques for microlensing. And we actually had at least one scare. We thought for a while there we might have found an Earth-mass planet, but it turned out to be an, an observational artifact. Not surprisingly, we're very cagey. A, a remarkable discovery requires remarkable data. And well, we didn't have it. We want to be really sure. But what it told us was, as we began to analyze our microlensing events, even those that didn't have planets, some of them, if they did have an Earth in the right position, we would have found it. Our, our data were good enough to have detected an Earth. Of course, that's not as good as actually finding it. And so we're really beginning to push these techniques now over the next few years. We think we actually have a good chance of being the first ones to get on the scoreboard with an Earth with these techniques. And maybe even an Earth in an Earth-like orbit around its parent star. We're not there yet, but the hope is really kind of there. So the hunt is on. Okay? This is probably the group that's going to beat everybody, maybe. And that's a mission called Kepler. It was launched late last year. It should be sensitive to transiting Earth-like habitable Earths around FG and KM-type parent stars. It's only just begun on-orbit operations. It's a little noisier than, than they'd like, but it's on. Okay? So we're continuing to search for planetary systems on lots of different fronts. There's lots of complementary techniques. 
We don't know how pl common planetary systems are or how common planetary systems like our own are, but we'd really like to understand that. And of course, the ultimate goal is to find an Earth, to find the pale blue dot. And that's what we'll talk about tomorrow.